Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is filmmaker Hugh Gibson, whose excellent documentary The Stairs, about harm reduction workers at Toronto's Regent Park neighborhood, opens this Friday, October 7th, at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, just weeks after wowing audiences at the Toronto International Film Festival. Hugh picked Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, for reasons he'll state in the first couple of minutes of the conversation. But I can sort of see why someone who makes thoughtful, compassionate documentaries would be drawn to Nicholas Meyer's return to the property he brought so vividly to life a decade earlier in The Wrath of Khan. It has a quiet sort of dignity beneath all the campy adventure and speech-making. There's a few ideas more than the movies it offered in a while, a convoluted plot about political assassinations and states of perpetual war— and it has William Shatner and Christopher Plummer throwing Shakespeare at each other just like they did in the good old days at Stratford. It's 25 years old, but it's still pretty lively. And you're probably wondering why you haven't revisited it in a while. Well, that's why we're here. This is someone else's movie. Why did I choose Star Trek VI? Because I wanted something fun to talk about. And Norm Wilner, because I wanted you to somehow try to explain a correlation between my movie and Star Trek VI. It's a good challenge. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, it's a it's a, as a guilty pleasure. It'll you know it'll do. Um, you know it's always fun to listen to to listen to to watch, uh, especially with my my brother. We have a, a lot of fun watching it together. Good memories of it. Um, I like that there's all these um, references beyond you know to like literature and to history. There's a there's a lot in there that and it's fun but uh, suspenseful. Um, you know, do, are there better movies out there? Yes, I think you could make that argument. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's 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 a fun one. It's the one that I always underestimate of the original Trek films. I mean, it really yeah, it breaks down pretty easily. You know, everybody knows the joke about the odd numbered ones being bad and the even numbered ones being the better ones. Yeah, that's true. But it's the one that in those first six always kind of drops back for me somehow because it feels like a television episode because it feels small really? at the same time as it feels cinematic. Okay. And I'm 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 never thought of it that way. Yeah, no. I don't know why. I think it's because the because the stakes are relatively high, but the execution is relatively low. I you mean, think it's so? A pretty intimate film. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In much the same way that you know, you don't think about Star Trek Two as a sh- as a movie that plays out in four locations, but it is. It's uh-huh. the two ships, the space station, and the planet. It's pretty confined. It really is, but because it's so big, and because it's engaging with the history of the show, I guess, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because it's the first episode or installment or chapter of Star Trek that says, oh yeah, these guys have histories and emotional weight and maybe Kirk's not as good at his job as he thinks he is. Right. And then with Six, I guess all the heavy lifting had been done at that point and everyone's getting a little old and Scotty is... Well, more than a little. Yeah. (laughs) By the time we got to Six, I think we were recovering from the absolute exhaustion of Five... That's Which why is, they probably made it, right? They're like, we yeah. can't go out with that. Yeah. Like, row, row, row your boat. 
Yeah. I mean, that's an awful movie. It really is, but it also has delusions of grandeur. Like, it wants to be a I mean, you need film. that. you need that, I think, for it to be that bad. Like, it really <laughs> needs to try, you know, so hard to really fall that flat. Yeah. And so for Six, I guess when I saw it uh, at the time in, what, what, 1991, it would have been, oh, well, can't be as bad as the last one. Let's see what happens. And then it feels very... Yeah, it is politically and historically active in a way that a lot of the other ones weren't. I mean, two sort of engages with Moby Dick and Melville, but that's as close mm-hmm. as they get to any kind of historical um, illusion or, or allegory. Yeah, yeah. It's like more <laughs> more or less uh, Moby Dick. Yeah. And like that whole Horatio Hornblower type, you know, correlation with like naval tales and even the costumes as well yeah it really tacks the whole franchise in that direction and makes it more military as well which i think was kind of neat uh so you came at it in a very different way than i did i was i was jaundiced and cynical because i might have been in grade six and (laughs) i like i was not even really a star trek fan at that age um I enjoyed it, I, I guess, as a kid, but, like, I wouldn't say, like, I watched it religiously or, you know, even knew all that much about it. Mm-hmm. Kind of came to it later. Um, but at the time, it was, like, a big spectacle, and it was really impressive, and it was, like, you know, the special effects were, were impressive at the time. It was, like, a, one of those early sort of CGI yeah. movies, you know, you got the, the blood, floating you know, blood, floating yeah. in zero gravity and the shapeshifter effects. And like when you're young, I mean, that's pretty cool. I personally, I think the effects hold up pretty well, relatively speaking. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that the action sequences are pretty good still. Um, but for me, like I came to Star Trek, like to take it more seriously, much later. So like, um, my first year at university was in 2000. And I was at York, and there was, like, a big strike. Um, (laughs) I know, it's hard to imagine. But uh, (laughs) pretty early on in my first year, and a lot of my friends had, like, moved away to uh, other, you know, uh, cities and stuff. And I was living at home. I didn't know anyone yet at York. So basically I was, like, you know, at home for (laughs) long stretches with not much to do. And I would watch... At night, I would go to Cinematheque, and I I remember, like, they had a Godard series on. You know, I was probably at Cinematheque, like, I don't know, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, like, four times, four nights a week, maybe even five, seeing, like, all the Godard movies, Claire Denis, I think they had a Claire Denis series, you know, things like that. But in the day, Star Trek TNG was on, (laughs) not even the original series, which I, I don't necessarily like all that much. I think that it's really dated and so on. But really, TNG, I really liked a lot. Or I started to, like, revisit it and, like, start to see that, like, oh, as a kid, I wouldn't have picked up on how clever the writing is. And I started to, like, sort of take it more seriously and see, like, wow, there's actually, like, a lot going on here. And, like, so many of the episodes are, are about, like, death and loss and, uh, you know, dealing with big subjects, and it was re- really, really interesting. Even a, an episode like, um, i trying to remember what, which one it is, The Outcast, if you think of that one, about, like, Riker. Oh, um, that was the genderless planet. Yeah, exactly, and there's, like, this monologue about, like, uh, 
you know, um, being, being an outcast for like, you know, loving someone of uh, another gender and, you know, it was, yeah. as a kid, you wouldn't pick up or you wouldn't probably understand, like, or I wouldn't have understood like, oh, this is about like, you know, gay issues. Um, but I think about it at the time, like, like, uh, you know, that, I think that that was probably like quite a bold move or yeah. maybe a show of its kind. And, well, that was certainly as close as they could get to acknowledging any kind of same sex or, or trends. I mean, I'm not even sure where you would, what pocket you would fit that in, but it covers all mm-hmm. of it. It was, um, I, I just wrote this in the, in the now piece a couple of weeks ago, like Star Trek was the first, it gets better. I yeah. think more or less. Cause even if it wasn't on a, on a sexual continuum, it, it told the bookish kids that, you know, sports isn't the end of it. There's a right. future out there and you'll be required. You'll yeah. be helpful then. Yeah. It was, yeah, it was hugely important to me as a kid growing up. I grew up on the original series because mm-hmm. um, I'm old and uh, saw it in reruns in the 70s when I came home from school. I remember, this is so embarrassing, but I remember not knowing, not understanding, because I'm just too young to remember the moon landing and the Apollo program was winding down by the time I was sort of conscious of stuff. So five or six years old, I remember being shocked that Star Trek wasn't, like, real. Like, that it wasn't that it didn't equate to where we were at the time. I just assumed that, you know, all the cool stuff was off in space and we were, we were here on earth. We were, we were the maintenance planet. We were just right. waiting for stuff to come back. And then, you know, somebody, probably my father or mother very gently broke it to me that no, that we're not traveling between planets yet. And we don't have alien races and none of this is real. And then we saw 2001. It's like, Oh, well you're just lying to me. Cause all of this stuff is, is clearly happening. But I used to think that the Spider-Man cartoon, Oh, how did they film that? <laughs> well, what's he holding on to when he's swinging from all those buildings? Really, I've never it's the magic of cinema. Yeah, I never had a problem distinguishing animation from live action. Well, I've heard of a lot you know, of people. Generational who, thing, maybe. Yeah, no, I, I mean, you're not the first person who said that. No, it's no. it's just the way you receive it, I guess. Yeah, and this is last year. No, I, mean, I might have been like uh, I don't know, seven or something. Sure. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I believe you. And the fact that Star Trek, that the original Star Trek was really heavy-handed in their allegories. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like the racism with the black, white, and white, black, yeah. and all that. Frank Gorshin. Yeah, that played for me as a kid, because it was so obvious that I could very easily understand it. Mm-hmm. You know, like, when you're six, it's like, oh, right, I get it. That's, they're silly. Um, I can't imagine what an adult would have experienced in 1966 or 67, watching this, like, really, this is what you're going to deal with the racism? But... The show has always been really good at... The franchise has always been really good at incorporating things. Even, you know, J.J. Abrams had, sort of deals with the post-9-11 world, with the militarization of, of Star Trek in his movies. And Into Darkness is all about the idea of striking back at a threat that's from within and all that stuff. Yeah. But the thing about The Undiscovered Country is that it really engages with the moment, the political moment at the time, like Glasnost yeah, and everything. Totally. It's a straight metaphor, but it kind of paves the way with that remarkable Vulcan proverb, only Nixon could go to China. Yeah. Uh, and I remember the whole room just sort of snickering and then really laughing, like taking a second because we're all processing it, that joke in our way. It's like, oh, that's dumb. No, wait, actually, the Vulcans would say something like that. They would be aware of it. But it was the first time, you know, some, uh, a friend of mine used to say that they always, there was a formula in Star Trek in the show, in the original series, gag was you would have, you know, Lincoln, Kennedy, Bill from Mars, they'd always throw in one future thing. Right. But with this, they 
really just acknowledged in a strange way that history is always influencing us. And the movies currently really only deal with it through pop culture, with the Beastie Boys coming back here and yeah. there, classical music. This is radio. I'm rolling my eyes. <laughs> yeah, it works for me. I love right. the idea. I love the idea that, you know, like 400 years from now, in the world of Star Trek, the only things that persist are the weird 40s tunes that Leonard Nimoy put in Search for Spock. Like, there's a I Remember You is in there and a couple of Johnny Mercer pieces. And then the Beastie Boys. And nothing else has survived. <laughs> you know, or uh, Star Trek Ford line about Harold Robbins, Jacqueline Collins. Oh, the Giants. Like, the <laughs> literature of your time is not the literature of the future. Yeah, totally. back. But with Six, yeah, there's this weird feeling that they are summing a lot of things up. So they want to deal with the Klingons and put the pieces in place for what will be happening in Next Generation, which was already underway. Uh, and it had been for a couple of seasons, right? I it's like that they do that in this film. Like, they don't just sort of, you know, it's like a victory lap film, basically, mm-hmm. you know, off the heels of a, an, an awful one. But they tried to um, extend the storyline, you know, of the of the series and, and turn the enemy into something new and, and I think try things with the series, which were interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Even if they were things that they tried before, like like about aging, and you know it works pretty well, I think. But like, you know, if you go back and look at Wrath of Khan, it's like like a lot of the same yeah. stuff. And <laughs> like, oh, we're getting old. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, that was back in you know ten years ago. Yeah, you're older. We made that film. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but all this stuff about the Cold War, I I, I think is is pretty interesting. Um, I. It's funny that you say that about the new films. You know, I, maybe I won't shit all over them, but I just, I'm not like, I don't like the new films, to be honest. Um, I, feel, I feel like they really got away from what I like best, specifically about TNG, but it, like, you know, this idea of like exploring big themes and, um, you know, science fiction, it's really about like the present day or, or history, right? Like to me, that's like what the great science fiction is. Yeah, it's not sure. really about the future. Star Trek, yes, of course, there's a sort of a utopian vision for humanity, which I think, which I think is interesting too. But I mean, really science fiction, it's about like talking about today and, and history and I do see that a lot in Star Trek 6 and sometimes it's in subtle ways like if it's the you know um, Christopher Plummer you know with the eye patch which I, I guess is like from a you know Israeli general from the Six Day War yeah Moshe Dayan yeah yeah or like um, although of course in the Klingons case they have nailed it into his head which is my single favorite piece of production well, design it's amazing because that's Klingon yeah it's of course like, you know they're not going to you don't get to take it off you just <laughs> where your where your honor, right? Like you just how does it how do you replace the eye? Oh, style. you don't do that. Just hammer something onto him. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm sorry. I mean we should see that more, shouldn't we? <laughs> um or like when they're in the trial scene and um, you know, they have the you know oh, Don't yeah. don't wait for the translation, the Adelaide yeah. Stevenson thing. Yeah. From uh yeah, from the from the Cuban Missile Crisis, like little you know, little touches like that. You know, I don't think that you would see those in the new films. Yeah, and I think that you got to give credit uh, to the director, who's a, an interesting guy, someone who's in, who has a lot of in, interest in uh, literature and who had made interesting stuff about Sher- you know Sherlock Holmes. He wrote the Seven Percent Solution, yeah. or Time uh, After Time, Time, after time with Jack Wells, the Ripper and H.G. Yeah. Wells. You know, yeah. things like this. And, no, um, Nicholas Myers is an absolutely fascinating 
filmmaker. He really is. Just never got his due. No. He's worked. Oh, that's right, because he's working on the new series too. Is he? Yeah, it says he is. Well, that's interesting. Yeah. Directed the day after. Um, yeah, we should talk about the day after. Yeah. I mean, that's one that I only watched kind of recently, for the first time. Oh yeah. Oh man, it's fucking crazy. It is like, it's really upsetting. Yeah. Like, can you? I was upset watching it now. Yeah, I, I can't imagine it. watching it like I, I saw it in '86 or whenever it was. Three. Wow. Uh, fall of '83. I would have been. I think it was the fall. It might have been the spring, but I would have been like 14 or 15. Mm-hmm. And it was simultaneously melodramatic and terrifying mm-hmm. just you could sort of see how incredibly uncomfortable the medium of drama is to the apocalypse at mm-hmm. least then mm-hmm. and so by the one hour point before the missiles start flying you're already just in a squirming uncomfortable position mm-hmm. uh and then there's this two minute war sequence which is kind of cheesy you know, like the x-rays and stuff but yeah, you just have to, you know, you have to abstract it. You can't just show absolute destruction. I mean, you can now, I suppose. But it, at the time, yeah, that was the only way that you could make it palatable. And then at the very end, I remember that, that little lead where it says, yeah, we only use 20 kiloton bombs because if we use 20 megaton bombs, there'd be no story to tell. There'd be no survivors at all. I didn't remember that part. Yeah, I remember it. <laughs> Seared into my brain. And then a few That's years awesome. later, I saw Threads. Uh, I don't know, though. That was the British version. Okay. Uh, which I apparently I'm on record. Someone quoted me, and I think it's a great line, and I'd love to take credit for it. I don't remember saying it, but threads is what the day after has nightmares about. Oh Jesus! Because it's absolutely like it's a kitchen sink British treatment of the apocalypse. That mm. and Testament, I think, are the two. I don't know that one. Yeah, either. nobody remembers Testament. Yeah, day after. Oh, got it. Um, and it ends with um, I think they play waltzing Matilda, like a, a reference to on the beach. Oh, okay. Which to me is still like arguably the most depressing movie ever made. <laughs> That's right. Like, it's the one that ends with the hopeful message that no one will ever read. Yeah. Oh man, just the day after, like, holy <laughs> fuck! Do you remember like the the they shoot like that family like trying to help people? Oh, it's like right. it's so dark. It's so oppressively brutal. It's like. This was on network TV in the early 80s. Yeah, like the second half ran without commercials. It was a big deal. Wow, you just stuck wow, there with wow. it. Yeah. No, there really wasn't anything. I mean, there was people. Yeah. When people. People. Steve Gutenberg is in it. That's right. <laughs> Goes bald and takes the hat off to show the scalp. <laughs> the spots. They all gonna die. Not, the, not Gutenberg. Yeah. The Goots. <laughs> but the. Yeah, people. Do not know. It's not a question of remembering. People born like post nineteen ninety mm-hmm. really don't remember or understand what it was like to not know that everything was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Even now, terrorism is much more minimalized. It's not. It's scary, and I guess that's the real. That's the thing that makes me feel old more than anything else is that, I mean, when I was 12, I might not have been 13. Like, there was an unawareness that mm. everything was on a hair trigger and, and Reagan uh, upping the rhetoric in the early 80s. There was a genuine sense of apocalypse in the air. Movies like The Day After and Testament and uh, there was a, like a found footage thing called Special Bulletin that nobody remembers either. It was shot on video. Ed Swick directed it. It was 1982, I think. Hmm. And it was a network broadcast of a nuclear incident, uh, hmm. of, of an incident of terrorism where a bunch of eco-nerds had built a bomb and were trying to threaten the government into shutting down a nuclear plant. Hmm. 
hmm. with their bomb. It was the fight fire with fire thing. And it's genuinely unnerving to watch this stuff and think, yeah, it's not so far from possible. Now it's the stuff of science fiction and movies like uh, The Undiscovered Country that deal with, I mean, basically insurrection and attempts by governments to undermine their own peace process. Mm-hmm. That's... Bit of a seven days in May yeah, thing about it. That's I like that at the beginning where, like, the good guys are villainized and you have, like, I can't remember if they use this, but, like, Brock Peters is suppo- was supposed to give this, like, very sort of, you know, horrible account of, you know, what the Klingons are and they should all be eliminated. Well, Kirk says something like that. And it's yeah. like, oh, geez, like, really? And it's like, look, you know, look at ourselves, you know, with a little bit of distance, you know? Yeah. I mean, now we're still doing it now in yeah. terms of demonizing God. Americans are demonizing other Americans now. It's just easier than listening. Yeah. Um, and the common humanity of, uh, of alien species is something that barely enters into it, but it's... Not the first time, I guess, that Star Trek has used science fiction to discuss the fear of the other. Mm-hmm. Certainly, I mean, they've been doing it on The Next Generation a lot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it was a weird way of engaging with the material that previously couldn't be confronted head-on, I think. in science, Not in science fiction, but in Star Trek. In that, that thing, in the idea that the cancer might be inside the Federation. That, yeah. that it might be a human failing. Mm-hmm. instead of the standard Roddenberry line of optimism will win the day and everything's going to be great and don't worry that there aren't any gay people will get around to that eventually. Like that <laughs> weird thing he had. Right. Um, that only now, 50 years later, is there going to be... Can there be a gay character in Star Trek? And first they had to retcon it by making it Sulu, which is mm-hmm. fine. Mm-hmm. I like that. But also... Oh, by the way, it's amazing uh, at the beginning as, as the captain... You know, that's a great oh, opening. In, in Star Trek Six. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, George Takei doesn't get enough credit for actually creating that character. That's a really good opening, I gotta say. You know. And starting with the music like in a like in a different way than the other films. Mm-hmm. And like just and sort a of subverting cut, expectations. Right? That first opening is actually yeah. shocking. I remember the audience yeah. going yeah, when it happened theatrically when Praxis explodes. Yes. Exactly, Praxis. I remember stuff. An incident. Yes. <laughs> but the idea too that you're seeing these characters in a way that you haven't seen before. That's new, I think, for this film. The idea that mm-hmm. after the trilogy of 2, 3, and 4, which I do think is the sort of high point of old Trek, because it is... 3? A high point? I don't know. You, that's being generous. You need 3 to get to 4. Like That's right. the way I see it. It's, it is absolutely not the best one. Uh, but after yeah, Well, you're absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> but after 2 gives you the mythology and the stature for the first time mm-hmm. all connecting properly because, you know, Star Trek The Motion Picture is about looking at things in awe but not looking at our our characters in awe, right? They're just... I think it's about falling asleep in awe, maybe. Well, there's that too. <laughs> but within the, within the context of the film, it's, wow, this is all so spectacular mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. no one's doing anything. And then two comes along and it is spectacular but we also have human connections and, and characters that we are engaged with. And then three is the episode. Three is the TV series version where it's like, oh, that's right, there's bickering and there's silliness and Spock's not there, so there's a hole in it. And let's figure it all out. There's a planet and stuff is happening. And by the end of it, we're where we should be for the next movie. Right. And then you get four, which is this 
literally the voyage home where you get to reconnect to all the things that you love about Star Trek. And by the end of that, all the pieces are back together. And it could have ended there. Yeah. Because five makes you wish it had. <laughs> and then six comes along and it's like, hey, we're actually going to end it the way you think it should be ended. Using the weight of everything, all this thing, all this stuff that's been built up. Here we are. Let's let's do it right. Let's have a TV version a movie version of a TV show that feels like the show and let's enjoy ourselves and also hear some Shakespeare. Okay? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's get to some Shakespeare. And I guess they were going to call, they wanted to call Wrath of Khan the Undiscovered Country, Country yeah. right? That was a title that Meyer had been trying to use for years. Yeah, and they shot him down. But, um... Because it was going to be the vengeance of Khan as well. Like, it just... It's, I think they changed it because of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, like that. Well, Revenge of the Jedi. Oh, right. Uh, the yeah, next yeah. one. But that's the there great thing about the Star Trek II subtitle is that it gets less sophisticated. It just keeps... It's not dumbing <laughs> it's good down. It's to have wrath in a title once about, in a while. Yeah, how descriptive is... Well, he's is he seeking vengeance? Well, he's really just wrathful. Okay, Wrath of Khan. Do that. The Undiscovered <laughs> Day of Wrath, Wrath title. of Khan. You know, it's a good uh, subgenre. Yeah. But the Undiscovered Country would work for two because in that case, the Undiscovered Country is failure. Is, is Kirk being forced to confront his own shortcomings as a mm-hmm. captain, which is the thing that, you know, the show never did it. Star Trek, the motion picture, he's an admiral, never mind. Mm-hmm. You know, like, he's the best that there is. And two is like, you don't always think things through and kind of half-assed it. You mm-hmm. have a kid. You accidentally murdered a whole bunch of people by leaving them on the on this planet that, ex- mm-hmm. that went terribly wrong. You're not good at your job. You're lucky you haven't had to face... Um you know, your own mortality. Yeah. yeah. And it just hits all at once. And that's, what, I mean, I think that's why I love to the most is because mm-hmm. it's the only movie where like Shatner's performance reads like a performance, mm-hmm. like Kirk is fronting yeah. the actor and he's forced to confront that, which is so great. And then by six, you know, he's humbled and wiser and still trying really hard not to be mature because he doesn't want to be the peacemaker. He he wants to keep his hate, mm-hmm. uh, which is the character pe- that keeps me going in that film because otherwise it could have been a really stiff allegory for Glasnost and U.S.-Russia relations. But instead you have a man who, you know, I, I don't want to have to start seeing these these creatures as human or as, or as my equal. I want to hate. It's easier. Mm-hmm. And that's really interesting reminds me of uh, one of the best twilight zone episodes that actually george decay's in uh fuck i forget what it's called but it's like two guys are stuck in like an attic do you know this this one where it's like one of them was a you know a usgi and and the other one is george decay very young george decay and he's like the you know japanese gardener and basically they're locked in this attic and they uh are basically hashing out all the post-war traumas of, oh, you seem like a good guy, but I've been taught to hate you, yeah. you know, for all these years. I think, and I, I think it was actually, like, banned. I think it was the one episode that they weren't allowed to air, but you can get it now on DVD, and it's really dark, really dark. And the, and the American guy especially, I forget the actor's name, but he is one of these character actors. He always plays, like, a... You know, a slob or an idiot or... Roger Crawford kind of guy. Sort of, yeah. yeah. He's in... Uh, yeah, funny enough, I think he's in Tora, Tora, Tora. Yeah, that makes sense. And <laughs> but he's, he's really like like a jerk. Yeah. You know, and I'm sure a lot of people would have, like, objected to that. But he's... And he's also um, torn. He knows he's supposed to feel, you know, a certain way now that mm-hmm. things are 
different, but he can't. And so, what's the twist? They're both Lithuanian. <laughs> <laughs> no, the the twist. Well, for those, you know, spoiler alert. No, there's a samurai sword that one of them took off. That the American guy like took off a oh, Japanese God. soldier that he killed. You know, in the in the war, wherever Okinawa or whatever, and uh, and uh, you know, Takei is like has it. And he's like, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill him, and they have to try to like not kill each other, and then uh, Takei does kill him with the with the sword, and then he jumps out the window and kills himself. Yeah, that's the end. Sound like a Twilight Zone. <laughs> <laughs> and there's like only it's one of the few where there's only sort of the thinnest strand of any sort of like fantasy or yeah, science yeah. fiction just like I these never barely oh, it's really interesting it's it's captivating huh. yeah there's only like one other twilight zone episode that's like like that where there's no sort of fantasy but I don't know, maybe we digress <laughs> that's <laughs> with a guy like they, they make this bet um these two guys are at, at like this club and one of them's like um you know, like like a gentleman's club, basically, like for, you know, rich folk. Right. And uh, one of them's like boasting, this young guy's boasting, and then this other older guy's like, you know, I can't get any peace. I'm going to make a bet with you for some enormous sum of money that you can't keep your mouth shut for one year. And they make this bet at the beginning. And, you know, typical Twilight Zone fashion. There's a nice twist, but yeah, it's worth seeing. Okay. Yeah. It's... Well, again, and that type of storytelling was much more acceptable in the 50s and in, in the 60s. It's, it's in Star Trek as well, where irony isn't irony. It's just a big kind of womp-womp moment where you're forced to, you know, we want to make sure everybody gets this message, which, again, is why I played for kids, why, why you win over this young audience that embraces the, the concept. But you have to be more sophisticated as, you, as time goes on and as you get older, as the audience ages, but also... What played in 1967 won't play in 1991. So mm -hmm. you can have, you know, it's fun to have the reversal of, well, you don't really appreciate Shakespeare until you hear him in the original Klingon. Which, which I was, guess is a thing that, like, the Nazis a, used to say. It was a Chekhov joke in the 60s. Everything was from Russia. Uh, oh, okay. I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, the idea of. of I thought Star it was Trek like a Mephisto and, thing uh, a little, that, like, maybe. Weimar Republic used to say. It's probably borrowed from that. Yeah. Because, of course, in the 60s, the communists were monolithic. They they took away all outside influence. And so the idea, I assume, in Star Trek, they figured that communism would never fall. So Chekhov is supposedly from that world where mm -hmm. he's always like, everything is Russian. Mm -hmm, this mm -hmm. is not... This is not you speak of this John uh, John Wesley Harding, you know, like that kind of thing. This Bob Dylan was, of course, a Soviet agent. Um, you'd always everything came back to the original Russian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the Klingons perpetuating that in a weird way brings it back home because the original allegory is for is that they're the Russians or the the, the the center allegory, the central allegory of six is that they're the Russians. So. The Klingons are weirdly reclaiming the bit that Chekhov did in the '60s, but that they had to drop because, of course, that's no longer the case. And yeah. you'll notice, like in in the new films, they've had a really interesting time, sort of figuring out what to do with Chekhov, just make him really enthusiastic because he can't lean back on Mother Russia anymore because that is no longer a concern. Like the present day audience won't get that, so mm -hmm. you just have to take it out. And now, of course, with Anton Yelchin's death, they've said that Chekhov simply won't be part of the future. Trek mm. movies, which I guess is the right way to do it. You can't really recast that part. 
I don't know. He was very good at it. But the... Yeah, we've wandered very far away from that. Discovered it's good to, die, to divert. I People think. People love the digressions. I love the, the the all the Sherlock Holmes references. That's something I'm, I, I yeah, yeah. That I really love about. I guess that movie in particular. And well, it's Nicholas Meyer. Yeah, oh, age, totally. Right? Like he loves that stuff. Oh man, and just like oh, you made because I really dislike the new uh, Star Trek reboots. I really dislike the new Sherlock Holmes as well. Oh, which that, one? The Benedict Cumberbatch? Yeah, one? I just, I can't stand it. It's funny, I loved the first year. The first three episodes all felt really fun and light and, and fleet. And now it's just, Stephen Moffat has just disappeared once again up his own genius. And this weird self-satisfaction that runs through all of them is just killing it for me. It's like a CSI thing. It's like the whole idea of Sherlock Holmes is like applying logic and the scientific method from that era to like you know Mysteries. beat your opponents and solve the mystery and it's about using your intellect not like gadgets and stuff like what the hell is that <laughs> I don't know I, I, just, I couldn't get past that Have you watched- and also I grew up watching um, the Jeremy Brett uh, you know right the BBC series yeah, yeah which BBC I BBC just BBC. love and which I think holds up extremely well and I feel like, you know, you, you can't really get any better than that. Yeah. It's I can watch those over and over and over again. Period treatments of Holmes, or not period treatments of Holmes, all period, oh, Holmes should be in period. But the earlier versions of Holmes, like even the Basil Rathbone films, they work because they feel old and, and creaky somehow. And the Jeremy Brett stuff shot on video and it doesn't look that convincing, but it still feels more authentic than a present day treatment. Well, he's amazing. Like, that's one of, for me anyway, like one of the great like lead performances in any series. He's incredible. I, I mean, at the height of the show before he got sort of, he had illnesses and, you know, yeah. that stuff. But uh, but also like the... the um, supporting casts are incredible and the level of actors they got and the and the scripts and even like some of the directors like john madden directed a number of episodes and they're just extremely well done and the attention to detail um and and how faithful it is to the show but also improving on i i think improving on the uh, original source material which is you know it's hit and miss, in my opinion. Mm. If you want to have fun, <laughs> my idea of fun of like you ever go on a road trip is like get um, Sherlock Holmes uh, stories. Like you can get them by read by like Christopher Lee. That's really fun. <laughs> that would be good. Or by uh, Edward Hardwick, who plays uh, Watson in most of that series. Yeah, you want to cast you want to cast for Watson though. Like Lee is almost too intimidating to be reading. Oh, but he's great. Yeah. He's and he does all the voices anyway. Yeah, yeah, great I voice. I I think Cobb is the bond. <laughs> <laughs> I do think that Martin Freeman's Watson is one of the pleasures of the new Sherlock. Although, and I, I don't mind Cumberbatch. My problem is with the plotting and the narrative more than the actual performances. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's fair. Yeah. Huh. And but I haven't with, given it. I haven't watched it that much, so yeah. And with with Meyer, with the seven percent solution, mm. like he really took pleasure in presenting that relationship straight. Like there are no, mm-hmm. it's not a winking kind of adaptation. Uh, it, there's no meta text to it. It mm-hmm. simply is a Sherlock Holmes story that's really just. It knows the characters. It's really invested in who they are and what they do. And then it adds uh, Freud, which is just delightful. Mm-hmm. 
but that's where you get the commentary. And Christopher Plummer's in it too, right? Yeah. I want to say. I think so. Yeah. It's right here. And he is so good in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and I am a big Christopher Plummer fan. Yes. Again, he won't and I went and it, saw you know. him. Really? He, yeah, I tried to t- I tried to interview him. Well, I, I did interview him once, and I tried to bring it up, and he was... He wasn't hostile to it, but I think he saw it as play acting. Right. You know, he just didn't want to... But you were in makeup and having so much fun. Let's talk mm-hmm. about... And he's, he's pretty grumpy. As a, <laughs> I think he's he spent so much time talking about movies he doesn't really respect okay. well, I think he hated the sound of music legendary right? hate on for the sound of music I you, kind of I can get with oh I don't blame him at all yeah but when you, I find that unwatchable but I think after 40 years of eh, sound of music you hate yeah, talking yeah. about that I think he's just gotten very defensive about anything other than the thing he's talking about right this moment yeah but uh, yeah I would love to talk to I him I can about respect it. that actually yeah but, but I've, seen, I've seen him a bunch of times at Stratford I saw him do King Lear it was oh, fucking wow. amazing uh, Antony and Cleopatra and The Tempest as well oh, where you got a little Star Trek crossover <laughs> Our Rebels Never Ended yeah. <laughs> Never Sounded Better I'm telling you uh, I'd love to see that but yeah that was that was really special yeah. so yeah a bit of a, a Stratford throwback um, I guess that Shatner, I think, understudied for yeah, they Plummer were, at one they point at Stratford. utility player here and there. Uh, to me, that's hilarious. Yeah. And there's so many... This is another thing. You know, uh, there's so many Canadian actors. It's like a, lot, a high degree of CanCon <laughs> in this movie. Right? Kim Cattrall. Right. Oh, I forgot about Valeris. <laughs> you know the story, right? Like, well, it it's supposed, supposed to be, be the same... Yeah, yeah Savick, It was supposed right. to be Savick to the point where there were screenplays on set with Savick crossed out and Valeris written in. Um, so, wow. Yeah, that must be terrible for... So could they not get Kirstie Alley? Oh, I guess they'd already recast Yeah, it was part, Robin right? Curtis in 3 and briefly in 4, I think. Hmm. Uh, I think, ultimately, it was just decided that Meyer wanted to do it with Kirstie Alley. And he wanted mm-hmm. to bring her back and have her be the betrayer. Well, that would have been interesting. It would have been. From a casting point of view. But she was doing Cheers then, and... Possibly Look Who's Talking. Just uninterested. Yeah, she just... She either couldn't do it or didn't want to do it, but it was never going to happen. So they got Kim Cattrall, who... Mm-hmm. Eh, she's <laughs> kind of struggling with it. I mean, it's not her fault. Right. It's a hard role to play, and the, the look they gave her is just incredibly unflattering her head looks three sizes too big with that haircut and the ears you know like the bowl cut shaped over the ears just doesn't work for her and so you're watching pieces of star trek legend that aren't that that aren't right right like it's like watching a knockoff version of something because there's no question she's supposed to be savic right and because of that glaring um disconnect there's no question she's behind it. Like, mm-hmm. It's one of those things where it's like... The whole movie's like that. It's like, yeah, you know, it's, not it's so be, obvious yeah. who the bad guys are. Yeah, it's not going to be a thing's going to be. It really can, doesn't matter. Yeah, but that's the problem with the enemy within uh, principle of any of these stories is that the franchise is so rooted in these characters that you can't suddenly have someone have been evil all along, right? Like you, right. You couldn't... You can't do it with the Marvel movies. You can't do it with the DC movies. You certainly can't right. do it with Star Wars. Or Star Trek, you're, you're you're not allowed to violate that. And if you know, like, I I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, Chekhov would have a hate on for these guys. They're stealing his bit. Mm-hmm. What if that was part of it? What if he had a completely realistic motivation 
based on nationalism and communism. And mm-hmm. if they'd carried forward with that, then the logical endpoint of this thing is that he would really not like this. And nah, it has to be the new kid. Like mm-hmm. it can never be. Or, you know, in, in Into Darkness, where the true villain is the Federation all along because they've been militarizing even further since right. the events of the first movie, and this is where we lead. And it's like, yes, I get it, but yeah. it has to be somebody new. It's still Peter, yeah. you know, Commodore Peter Weller. It can't be somebody from the last movie, even. Yeah, I mean, you know how it's going to end. You, you know, same as in probably any of these franchise movies. So the key for me is, like, you got to have a really good villain or villains. I think that, like, any of these franchise-type or series-type movies, whether it's superheroes or the sci-fi or whatever, you know, it, it for me, it always lives and dies by the villain. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a great villain, to me, that's, like, the most important thing. Someone you can root for, someone who's funny, who's, like, actually evil, and ideally you have Christopher Plummer or someone of that ilk playing playing him or her and you know and you also got Iman who's like fucking badass That's like right. she's great you know and this whole idea of a shapeshifter and you know some of the cool effects you know cool cool for that era I think it's still kind of neat mm-hmm. or like you got you know the two Shatners and sort of like playing on his um, you know his, personas yeah. and egomaniac and so on and I guess maybe that's one of the reasons it feels like a TV episode to me. One of the one of the reasons it felt more like the old show is because it's not afraid to go for the hoary stuff and be just like, well, this is pretty lame, but it's awful. It's also he knows really what it funny. is. I yeah. mean, yeah, it's funny, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's able to make fun of itself. Yeah, and after again after the final frontier. There is no Just bottom. Basically like, humorless. Yeah. Which right. was but it was trying to be funny, which was the weird part. Wow. You know, like it's weird and folksy and it's not funny. It doesn't land. Everything feels no. stiff and awkward. And here, at least, there is just a sense It doesn't that, land, especially when he's falling off yes, the exactly. Yosemite thing. I have flying boots. I mean, that would have been great if he just died at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it certainly would have let Shatner focus on... That would be the on, final frontier. We could focus on directing. That would be fun. <laughs> Uh, wow, well, would it be fine? <laughs> well, it certainly would have paid more. The children have to learn, learn about tech wars sometime. Uh, no, they don't. No, they don't. We can keep them, we can keep them innocent. I think uh, uh, that scene in um, When Jews Were Funny about Shatner and about like how the traffic on the DVP is like, what does he say? It's holocausty. Yeah. The, yeah, some quote about William Shatner. Yeah. I think that's like kind of spoiled Shatner for me no way yeah I, I have in- <laughs> yeah or or I, I mean uh, I was listening to uh, Nicholas Meyer talk about like his uh, method of directing for Star Trek 6 and how he directed Shatner and basically he would let Shatner tire himself out <laughs> let him do like the first number of takes and you know do his version and then he would kind of get tired and then bring it down to something that you could actually use on film. That's amazing. It's the Kubrick method. You just exhaust your actor until they are normal. So there you go. So they stop emphasizing. <laughs> Kevin Pollack once shared with me the greatest, the secret to the Shatner impersonation, which is amazing, which is very simple. He said, it's all pronouns. Hmm. Uh, you emphasize every, you know, like, you don't understand. We are human beings. If you put the pauses in after the pronouns and you, and you hit them hard, I... Have a mission. It is all about 
I'm, I'm turning to Walken too. But the amazing thing about Shatner is that the delivery is like, you must, you, 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 I, we, the ship out of Don't danger. trust them. Yeah. It's all about hitting every. Um, Kiefer Sutherland's approach to Jack Bauer was that every sentence he is saying is the most important sentence he will ever say. And he said, that's how you get through 24 with your energy up. You, you go into a coma afterwards. But as an actor, like that's it's, it's all it's like a national theater school thing. Yeah, keep for seven. It's all coming out of you. <laughs> Be intense and in the moment. And Shatner seems to think that, but also that he's relaxed and, and snappy and witty. And I've I've interviewed him a couple of times, once in person and once by phone. And in person, he was he's great. He's relaxed. He's funny. He's in his element. He knows exactly what he's playing to. And on the phone, he's just this weird, disconnected, snippy. Are we done now? Is that a, is that enough for you? It's like okay. Uh, monologuer, hmm. which is a shame because you know kids never meet your heroes, especially if they're starship captains. Although that that said, that's not fair because Patrick Stewart is a delight uh, in person. You mean both? Yeah, he is. He's just, amazing. I mean, have you seen him in Christmas Carol? Oh God, I got him to autograph my CD. Really? I'm such a nerd. I feel like yeah. that's so overrated. I think that that show uh, show it's like a TV movie, but that is a that is a great. Movie. Overrated. Oh, underrated. Underrated. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. way underrated. Yeah. It's, I think it's fantastic. Again, the cast. We're really going off on a tangent now, but like, yeah, so that's Star uh, Trek is a broad universe. Now the uh, but listen to the audio. Miss <laughs> Carol. Thought two thumbs up. The uh, his audio recording of it. It's, it's it started as a one man stage. Yeah, yeah, and he did it on stage. I really wish I had seen that at some point. Yeah, me too. You're that boy. What day is it? Why it's Christmas Day, sir. Yes. <laughs> The one as big as me? Um, he's, he's amazing. I actually got to see him do um, Pinter. Really? With Ian McKellen. Uh, oh, wow. They were doing two plays in rep a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe three years ago now. Was this in London or New York? New York? Yeah. Yeah, they're, wow. they're actually taking it to London. I think they're performing it right now. They did Godot too, right? Yeah, that was the other play. We couldn't get tickets to that. But Kate and I were there for Thanksgiving and we rushed it. And we got tickets to the court um, the day after Thanksgiving. It was a Friday night. Wow. And it was... It was kind of remarkable because huh. uh, Pinter, you know, it's a very precise, dramatic form. And the two of them, mm-hmm. McKellen and Stewart, it's like, they didn't give a shit. They're just going to go in and do it. And they were mm-hmm. great. There was no no attempt to respect it, just to play it. Mm-hmm. And not that they disrespected it, but it was it was great. Mm-hmm. And then Billy Crudup and Skylar Hensley were fine. They were, just, they were secondary characters. But uh, I talked to Crudup about it a couple of years later. And he's like, yeah, I was just happy to be there. <laughs> I was just in awe. Yeah. Wouldn't you be? <laughs> exactly, yeah. But but then there is this weird thing throughout Star Trek, and which is why I'm really curious to see what Brian Fuller does with this new thing, to create, like, you cast above the show's weight. You cast... Because at the time, Shatner was... Like, he wasn't really well-known or anything, but he did have a big stage history. He was a, he was respected as an actor. He was in a lot of the Twilight Zone. That was another thing. Yeah. Going back to that. There's and... an affinity to genre, too. Judgment at Nuremberg, you know, mm-hmm. he has yeah. an impressive resume with, back with then. With Corman on The Intruder, things like that. <laughs> but he was, a, like, he could do anything. Yeah. And, and so... Is it Alfred Hitchcock Presents, too, I want to say? Uh, I don't know, maybe. It wouldn't surprise me. Don't quote me. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but he was in a bunch of stuff, plus, you know, a little bit of sci-fi. And... With Pat, you know, the same with Patrick Stewart, right? He'd been he'd done Dune and Life Force. No one remembers that he was in them, but you see the movies, it's like, holy shit, that's Patrick Stewart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but he was a virtual unknown when he was cast in in Trek, as far as American pop culture was uh, would go. 
But then to see those two worlds sort of colliding, because the other thing about the Undiscovered Country is that it has, you know, Worf's grandfather. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a pre-Deep Space Nine, Rene Aubergenois, in the yes. deleted scene yes. that was restored to video. I assume you would have seen that version every time, right? Like Colonel North. Right. That weird Oliver North joke where, again, you can I totally get why it was cut, because it tips it just a little bit further into uh, present-day relevance. You know, like, we have to have this extra secret CIA plan thing going on, and then they simply remove the, the scene at the end where the mask is pulled off and it was Aubergine under that, because the theatrical version, it wasn't him. It's just a Klingon. Uh, really? Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, that revelation is Seriously? Cut. Yeah. That's what Meyer put... Okay, I didn't in. remember that. I thought it yeah. was always him. No, no, theatrical cut had no Aubergine oh. whatsoever. Huh. Um, because it's, I guess it's... An extra, because I, I suppose if they'd cut the earlier scene, the three minutes of him explaining their secret plan, and just had, hey, Rene Aubergenois was under there the whole time, that would make no sense. So they had to cut the reveal. Who appeared memorably in uh, this year's uh, Kelly Reichardt film, That's right. Suit and Women. Yep. That was good to see him. Yeah, he's he's cool. And McKibben Mrs. Miller, which comes out on Criterion Is very, very soon. Yeah, yeah. They he actually he accidentally leaked that. I mean, we all kind of suspected it was going to happen, but he said, just tweeted out of the blue. Criterion just interviewed me for McKibben Mrs. Miller, and everybody's like, Criterion's doing McKibben. <laughs> and then a couple of weeks later, it's like, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Someone was telling me the other day that he's has like nobility in his lineage. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, he seems, seems kind of regal, doesn't he? Yeah, he's got good bones. Good bones. He's got the bearing. So to me, like getting back to this thing about like the elements that you need for like a good movie like this, where you you basically know exactly how it's going to end. They're going to have the you know the little clapping moment at the end yeah. and the sappy music and whatever else. You, there's not going to be really any big surprises, but you need you need good villains and the supporting cast around as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we haven't really given enough credit to the Seven Dwarves, as uh, Shatner <laughs> referred to his co-stars, for many, many years until they got him to stop. But I mean, like, the the, the sort of smaller characters that, that sort of, I don't know, make up, uh, I don't know. So we're not talking about... Well, Iman is, it would be one, but, you know, you got Kurtwood Smith and heavy makeup. Yeah, oh, that's right. <laughs> you Brock Peters, you know, David not Warner that they have a lot to is... do, but... Umpteenth Star Trek role. David Warner. Yeah, yeah, David Warner, exactly. Who, again, I, I just love the idea that Nicholas Meyer insists on casting him, even though he was just in the last one. <laughs> yeah. In a different role. Oh, yeah. But Chancellor. And the uh, the other thing I really liked about this one is this is the film where they don't even try to give the Klingons names. They're just like Gorkon, uh, Chad, Gorkon. Krang. Because they're, they're just, they're weird sounding names. And, yeah. and they've already started to, like, Worf. That's sort of a cool Klingon name. Yeah. Worf is all right. It's all right. But then, you know, Gorkon just sounds like a measurement of time in another science fiction series. And General Krang, eh, why not? Is that one of them? That, sounds like that, the Ninja Turtles. Isn't Krang the character that... Or is it Chang? Chang. I think Chang, it's Chang. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And Chang isn't even trying. Like, it's just... Well, I like that they don't the have... The Fumichu that she's wearing. Ah, eh, just give him a Chinese name. Let's go with that. I like that... that... I think Plummer insisted on, like, I don't want to speak Klingon. I don't want to have to learn this gibberish. And, like, why would you hire Christopher Plummer, like, to speak Klingon as well? So they invent this, like, thing where they're speaking through the translator. It doesn't really make sense, but it's, like, you know, whatever. Yeah. It's Star Trek VI. It's Christopher Plummer. Yeah, we've had universal translators on the show for 30 years. You might as well just keep playing with that. Totally. 
But uh, Plummer, yeah, he comes with his own rules. He's going to play it like he wants to play it. I, I mean, wouldn't like you that. let him do basically what he wants? Yeah. that's The one regret <laughs> is that, it, that there isn't more for him and Shatner to just play. Yeah. They're, they're, I mean, I suppose what they're doing is playful. They're so committed to these roles that, you know, the kind of thing that's going on constantly. <laughs> it is a bit ridiculous. But I just, I needed, you know what, there is no scene where they, where the thing that you need the most in any Glasnost allegory, I think, is a scene where the enemies get together and just get shit-faced. And but, but that's the dinner scene where is, they get drunk. It just doesn't go far enough, I guess. Like, it cuts away. I just wanted, I wanted the whole That thing. works for the story, though. You sure. want, you want it at the end? I like wanted, a reconciliation? You want Patton, basically. Actually, where they're like, been, you're, yeah, you're, all you're right. an asshole. <laughs> I'll drink of that. <laughs> or whatever. That maybe wouldn't mind that. I mean, if you're going to send them off into their... Pre-Cold War. Yeah. Send them off into their perfect signatures in space kind of ending. <laughs> Let's send them off with a buzz. Yeah. Because <laughs> the signature. Yeah. Oh, my God. I mean, it's silly, but it did feel like they were literally signing off. To the point where when Generations comes along a few years later, it's like, well... You know, we never told you how Kirk died. So yeah. It doesn't matter. He went off into space with his friends. That's how it's supposed to go. And then you just feel like this extra piece of, of bridge building, literally, uh, is happening in, in the new movie because there has to be a handoff. But there really doesn't. Totally. Like, Star no, Trek VI is the handoff. Yeah. There's an acknowledgement that the future is coming. You've got hints. The little Kittimer thing in Star Trek VI yeah. carries over. Yeah, you don't, and it came like at the would you say like it came at the height of TNG's kind um, of popularity? Definitely, it was at the peak of the show. Yeah, yeah, creatively, I think. Yeah, then the, the you know seasons four and five were kind of the high point, and then it yeah. tapers off well. But it's it's also like season six and seven are kind of a victory lap as well. Who knows? Perhaps we ourselves are just <laughs> little bots on a machine in someone's table. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! Oh, and they get into Sherlock Holmes and yeah, TNG and as well, yeah. which is enjoyable. It was. Like, this is the way that I... I mean, there's a reason Generations isn't in the box set that we're looking at here, the Star Trek original motion picture collection. Uh, Generations is the, hey, we got some of the actors to come back. <laughs> Let's do this. And Shatner told me, like, he said the only way he'd do it is if they let him ride a horse. So they came up with a reason. It's like, were you trying to dare them into not hiring you? Is that what you were doing? I want to ride a horse. And Didn't he get pissed off that he wasn't in the, the reboots, though? I think later he is, yeah. He, he felt that he should be... I mean, obviously he feels like he should be part of everything. That's William Shatner. Um... <laughs> But uh, it's not like... <laughs> I think they probably went with Nimoy because it makes more sense to have Spock in the, in the reboot because if you're going to do time travel and throw someone back, it has to be someone who can handle it. You know, like, if Kirk goes back in time, he's going to try to fix everything. And Spock gets there and goes, oh, shit's fucked up. I guess I can't do anything about it. Well, let's go lead New Vulcan. I'm, I'm, I'm cool with that. Maybe Nimoy just aged better as well. Which is also... On, yeah, that's on camera. Yeah. Well, plus we've killed Kirk, so... Well, you, know, you got that, gonna, too. If you're going to sustain the I continuity... Mean, what does that mean, though? It's true. I think well, the only way... Yeah, it's that weird Vulcan thing where the lifespan is long enough that he's lived into the next generation, which lets all of us nerds go, well, those adventures still happened, then they were unwritten by time travel, but they're all still real. Oh, Canon is maintained. Roll my eyes at that whole thing, and like we blowing need, up Vulcan. And... We need to have a continuity in our heads. Canon is really important. But I didn't mind the blowing up Vulcan. I, I don't mind the direction that they've taken it in because it feels like it's relevant to current 
I feel like I'm in the minority with this one about like hating on the reboot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you seen the newest one or did you not bother? No. Because it's not after the second one. Yeah. Weirdly, this one oh, Beyond man. feels the most like an episode of the show, uh, of the original show, though it's not the Next Generation, mm-hmm. so it may still not work for you. But the idea is that it's a small. The stakes are big, but it's still fairly small. It's all almost all set on a planet, and everybody's separated, and they have to figure out how to get back together as a crew. It works. It's got a motorcycle in it. Um, I don't know. I like this where they got like you know Chagall painting and Spock's uh, <laughs> you know quarters and they talk about it. Yeah, you know it's they, would they have that in a in like a, a you know a, a picture the, in this era? I feel like it's like a, a, a throwback in a way to like a different type of science fiction, at least that I prefer. Mm-hmm. You know where Just they talk talking. about I don't know history and other ideas and it seems like the new ones I don't know yeah. it's just really not about anything it's just like about being a tent pole and they're cynically just about you know whatever but I think they may be appealing to just the the 12 year olds within the action and there's not really much going on else mm. I don't know I think the second maybe one maybe you read a... more into it than I do yeah. but it feels like Into Darkness has a lot more to say about post 9-11 American justifications but it's not, certainly not the thread of the film. It's just a, an idea that's floating around in there, as well as a bunch of stuff from The Wrath of Khan and, and The Search for Spock and mm-hmm. Voyage Home. Um, I think in watching, like, Star Trek Six as, as someone of that age, like, maybe I would have been around 12, mm-hmm. you know, certainly would have responded to the action, but also, like, you know, the... the uh, prison planet that they go to is called Ruripente, which is from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and, like, all kinds of little subtle references like that. Uh, I don't know, like, I, I would respond to that, and yeah. I don't think that you would necessarily see that kind of attention to detail in that way. Yeah, that's definitely Meyer, though. Like, he's... He yeah, absolutely, can't, which he I can't not yeah, do I appreciate. it, which is great. But now, like, now that stuff would be dismissed as Easter eggs, and nobody would really think about what it means. Like, that's the other problem with contemporary science fiction. Yeah, it's all become... It goes part and parcel with science fiction, though, again. Yeah, but what I mean is that the idea of referencing the past and putting in uh, allusions and allegory is now just, hey, this thing is this thing. That's where people stop thinking about it. It's like 10 things you didn't know about Star Trek VI. Right. Um, In 1991, you could actually just let that stuff simmer. And maybe people would figure it out and maybe they wouldn't. Or maybe 30 years later, they read, you know, like they hear about it somewhere. Hey, that's this thing. But I love that because before the internet, you could actually just have something that was a pleasure for yourself. Mm-hmm. You could just experience something, even with an audience, but it's still your own experience and it doesn't have to be immediately shared or validated or compared. And these movies were very much made for a pre-internet world. Yeah. Like they're just self-contained. Kind of at the end of that era, right? I mean, yeah. 91 and yeah. that. I mean, even, I, I don't think the net was what it is now until maybe 2000 but like the Netflix of, Sandra Bullock movie yeah yeah that's right that's, that was just a few years away you could order pizza the net just isn't what it was back then yeah uh, it's weird though Erwin Winkler's masterpiece <laughs> someone I, was I saw say, that in the theater by the way oh so did I <laughs> yeah the you, old York uh, Highland oh the Highland a blessed memory that's a lovely old theater they're all gone now they yeah. are I saw, where did I see Star Trek Six? The Cumberland Four. 
Okay. Uh, in the law reserve, in the old basement one. So it was probably in 70 millimeter. It might have been the last thing they, like the last 70 millimeter Star Trek, definitely. Star Trek 6 was done in 70 mil? It Are was you serious? In 70 mil. Really? Yeah. Oh, 70 mil blow up was a thing. 70 millimeter blow ups were a chance to charge. This. this is, yeah, you kids today. Back then? Really? In the 80s? In the, probably even in the 70s, but definitely in the 80s and into the early 90s, you would see most major studio releases would be released in 70 mil. Blow on my fucking mind. I've never, literally never heard this before. They weren't shot that way. They okay. were blow-ups. Uh, but... Is it like like a movie that wasn't shot in 3D that is like badly put in Yeah, 3D? No, they were blown up. It was simply, for the most part, it was because of multi-track audio. That's how you got a stereo soundtrack It's not like theaters. Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet or something. No, that was shot in 70 mil. Oh, yeah. Camera 65, I guess it was. But yeah, no, um, no, Star Trek, I think I've seen... Yeah, I would be willing to bet I'm almost positive I have seen all six Star Trek movies in 70 mil because I know well one three and five I mean really de- demand to be seen in 70 mil I know I saw Star Trek 3 in 70 millimeter because it was at the Hollywood uh, Star Trek 4 at least one of the times I saw it would have been at the university I think maybe no the Uptown but definitely a big 70 mil room and at the time it was only 50 cents more to see a 70 millimeter engagement no one man believed. those are the days they Didn't, were like back then four twenty five for for a matinee eight dollars yeah. for an evening show yeah. you know at the Eglinton six fifty when I was a I kid mean going to you see you can't a beat that shit no and you, you saw the movie in a proper movie theater I mean yeah. there, there's some decent houses in the in the city but the Uptown one the Eglinton yeah. the Highland one the Hollywood South those were those were palaces. Yeah, Star Trek... It's weird to be talking... <laughs> yeah, so Star Trek 6. But just in terms of Star Trek 6 is now its own kind of niche, right? Like Because yeah. Star Trek has moved on. Even the franchise kind of looks back on these things fondly, but not as... And they're not as important. They don't have the weight that they used to. So now, in a weird way, the, start, the original cast, original series stuff has become quaint little baubles that people remember fondly, but don't worship the way they do the new stuff or the like the, the excitement around Star Trek Discovery is I think a great indicator of where the show is going people really want to see a new direction they're less interested in the old stuff and even the new movies which are technically the old stuff are less interested in the old stuff mm-hmm. so it is the kind of thing that is held fondly on a shelf by people and now the dog is snoring because he's not interested in my Star Trek theories but yeah, it's, but you do need a great villain, and like Christopher yeah. Plummer is one of the great ones, you know, you know, and it, you know, you need uh, maybe Q isn't like a, a villain per se, more like a trickster, but like the Borg. I think Q, you know, yeah, I think people embrace Q because he's a fan. Yeah, you know, show me what you're doing, Jean Luc. I enjoy playing, watching well, yeah, you play. It's just fun, right? Yeah, but he's like he's the he's the Mary Sue, like he's the character that the fans want to be omnipotent and puckish mm-hmm. and yeah, maybe puckish not malevolent yeah. really because it's a kid playing with his toys um, for fan identification I love watching how Star Trek's fan identification has changed like Kirk and Spock were the original you know like they're the ones you they're the ones you aspire to be and then with the next generation it took Picard a while to become the hero the sex symbol because he mm-hmm. was originally supposed to be cerebral and removed and sending the away team down and Riker was supposed to be the Kirk surrogate but mm-hmm. that just didn't happen um, which is no disrespect to Jonathan Frakes he's very good at doing what he's doing but the mood of the world was different enough that slowly it was Patrick Stewart who emerged as the one people wanted to see with his shirt off <laughs> 
And uh, I mean, really? That's incredible well, to me. Remember they came up with reasons for him to be... Like, he's got shirtless scenes in the second half, that back half of the series. He's the one where he's held hostage under the... There are four lights! That scene... With David Warner, no less. Warner again, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's not, a great episode. Has not Gorkon. Has David Warner... Is David Warner the only actor who's been in everything? Like, interacted with every cast? Oh, I don't know. I mean, he's been in everything, period. He was in Deep Space he's in, Nine. He's in Straw Dogs, for God's sake. You know? Yeah. The man The man is he's well-traveled. A, he's a veteran. I'd love to sit down and talk to him someday about just anything. Yeah. We could talk about, you know, like gardening. Because he'd have stories. Titanic? Well, time after time. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, he's... That's a... That's true. A film that I am repeatedly shocked. Kate had never. Kate hasn't. Still hasn't seen it. We we're going to watch it at some point, and I was like, "Oh, I must have the Blu-ray." There is no Blu-ray. It's never been released. Really? Yeah. Right. And Malcolm McDowell. Is Malcolm like McDowell. A sort of soft-spoken, sympathetic yeah. hero. The 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 playing know. against type. Malcolm McDowell, because he is great view of San Francisco yeah. as well. And it's definitely uh, made me want to visit there. Yeah. yeah, it will always be very special to me because I saw it on one of the days it takes place. Hmm. It, the opening weekend is really? the weekend that the film takes place. That's funny. And I saw it at the Baby Village, which is no longer there either. Uh, but I saw it on the Sunday, so it was like my dad took us, and we were like, "Shit, this is happening right now!" <laughs> that was the first time I'd ever experienced that. It was so cool. <laughs> Uh, but it's an amazingly underrated film, and please, if anyone here listening is connected to Warner Brothers, get that shit on Blu-ray. There's no excuse. There's a TV show coming out. There's no excuse for this. Of time after time. Yeah. Really? Present day reboot. Yeah. It's the same premise. H.G. Wells chases Jack the Ripper into 2016, and I think it's in New York, not San Francisco. So they're rebooting something that was like not like very successful, I guess. Or? It was so. It did okay at the time. Uh-huh. It was it was well regarded, and it like it got Meyer the Star Trek Two gig. Mm-hmm. But yeah, his well, and again, his work is always a little smarter than it needs to be, a little more fun than you'd expect. Mm-hmm. So he's. One of those filmmakers, filmmakers, as far as I understand. People really love working with him. He just doesn't work that often. And I don't know why. I like that they pushed the series in certain ways, like introducing this idea of zero gravity, which is like not done mm-hmm. anywhere else. Um, yeah, I guess maybe that's the most noble example. And just like, you know, flipping about uh, expectations about, you know, making the, the good guys bad guys, especially at the beginning. You know, taking a, a premise that is very sort of obvious where it's going to go, but also trying different things. Yeah, I, I do appreciate that about the movie. Yeah, for all its fustiness, it does feel like a a lively film. Like it's a it's a movie of ideas that didn't need to have them because of the age of the, like. Or having like Sulu as, as captain in the beginning yeah. would be another one. You know, advancing the I don't know the characters in a way or. Well, it's just a way to mark time, too. Yeah. Like, it, it would be ridiculous Connecting if these Worf people... Connecting with and the next series as well. Yeah. It would be ridiculous if these people had stayed the same. And th- I guess that's what's so great about the, the trilogy of 2, 3, and 4 is that it finds a way for Kirk to just sort of fall back down the ladder to where he needs to be. I just... I love the idea that maybe being an admiral is not the thing that he should be doing. Mm-hmm. He doesn't want to sit behind a desk, which is one thing, but he's also probably terrible at it. Mm-hmm. Like... Admiral Kirk, it's time for the meeting. Oh, I don't want to do that. I and the reading glasses. Yeah, yeah, I have a book to finish. I'm writing my memoirs. <laughs> but to see the to see the ending of six does feel like it's time to go. Like it, yeah. we've gotten everything out oh, of yeah. this that we can, and it's time to give it over to a new generation. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of cheese I'm okay with in Star Trek because I kind of need it at that point. 
Yeah, you get Christopher Plummer doing his Shakespeare. and I mean, what the hell else do you want? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the final question on the show mm-hmm. is always the same as well, which is how, uh, what, and this is where you have to explain your opening statement, what of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, has made it into your creative DNA? Have, have What have you borrowed or oh, stolen man. or lifted? You're making me answer this? <laughs> I am, if you can. I mean, if, if there is a logical progression... Uh, I think. No, I don't know. I did. I was watching TNG like on Netflix as I was editing. I don't think it was more like a having somewhere else to go mentally to get away from the right. heaviness of some of my film. But uh, I don't know, man. But that's valid. It's too. just something fun. Sometimes it's, you need to like it's uh, your escape valve. Kick back, yeah. So yeah, how, I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Do you return to it? Uh, like, more to, more to Star Trek VI than any of the other ones? I like 2 and 6, basically. I, t- I take them more seriously than the other ones. I think I find 5 a bad film. 4 is okay, but kind of more cartoonish. Um, 1 is just a snore to me. Two, but two, 2 and 6 I really enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have to leave them. You know, like if you have to move on and, and I guess if the new ones aren't working for you then are you disconnecting entirely from the franchise or are you interested in the new show will you be checking it out maybe I don't know I don't know much about it to be honest uh, yeah I suppose I would you know sniff around yeah but um I kind of just stuck with TNG I never really watched uh, Deep Space Nine that much or the other new- newer shows um but I've gone back to TNG over and over again and and always enjoy the writing especially um and i guess the acting as well but i but i find the writing on tng especially like very underrated and and actually extremely sophisticated not just for its time but i think that it holds up remarkably well and and is deep and and, and i find that um yeah as i was saying earlier like so many of the episodes are about dealing with things like death and loss and separation and yeah, all kinds of things like that. It's it's actually kind of... It's not what you think of when you think Star Trek TNG. Yeah. Especially watching it as, as a boy, as I, as I would have yeah. initially. As an adult, to me, it, it really surprised me that the two... Like, maybe the two best episodes, uh, Yesterday's Enterprise and The Inner Light, are about mm-hmm, lives mm-hmm. that don't happen. Mm-hmm. They're about, like, literally alternate timelines and, and fantasies. Yeah. Um, where things worked out a different way. Totally. Yeah. And then they're very emotional, actually, too, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and then you have Mark Twain. Yeah. Which, somehow, that's, <laughs> that's like, you can just see the ghost of Gene Roddenberry going, yay, they did Mark Twain. And the drumhead is, is a great episode, too. I, and I agree with you about the other episodes, which I think are fantastic. Mm. The drumhead is the, the one. The drumhead is the one with Gene Simmons. Um, oh, it's like a trial it's, of... It's, yeah, it's like a, sort of like a live TV kind of throwback. I, I, I think of it that way. Mm. You know, from the 60s, uh, I think it was like very sort of under budget. Um, there's very little sci-fi about it. It's more like a courtroom drama. Yeah, it's a bottle episode, really. It's a court martial. Yeah, yeah. And like a, you know, throwback to the Red Scare and, and Paranoia and just extremely well written. And, and, you know, you get someone to the level of Gene Simmons and she, I mean, she's really good. Yeah. Yeah. And Not a really deep insight there, but I mean... <laughs> You know, again, the, that they would try something like that in TNG. Yeah. You know. So, is there something that the show never did that you wanted it to do? 
Was there was there something that after seven seasons that was missing for you? Huh. I never thought about that. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure out if there's a connection between like the sense of potential at the end of, St- of Star Trek VI and the, the way the show delivers on it. I don't doesn't. think so. I, no, I, I gotta say, I never thought of that. I thought that the last episode was, was great. It was a great way to finish the series. Hmm. I, I don't know. No, it never occurred to me, to be honest. Okay. So you're happy with, with Star Trek as it is. <laughs> I like guess. Now that, now that the reboot is there and that all this other stuff is there, you're content with what you remember with the stuff that... You're, you're happy that you have what you... I don't know how I'm framing this exactly, but... Or I don't know you how... You mean, what could they do more in the new ones? Did you get everything you... bring yeah. me back as a viewer? Yeah, did you get everything you want? I mean, it, it just seems so sort of brain-dead what I saw, the, the new ones... You know, there was nothing... I found very little about the old series at all. Um, the fact that they would rehash, like, plots like that. This is an, another thing with the new Star Wars movie. Like, you know, can't you fucking come up with something new? Like, it's one thing to reboot a series, but, like, you're actually, like, basically remaking the previous film as well? Like, come on. Yeah. I didn't mind it with Star Wars... Because in The Force Awakens, there's this weird poetry to finally completing that thing that George Lucas always insisted on, which is that this this is always the story of the Skywalker family, and that mm-hmm. you know the same things happen to the same characters and the same characters' kids because they have to break the cycle. I'm okay with that because it's mythic in a way that reaches back to Campbell and all that. Yeah, but another Death Star, yeah. really? Well, I love that because they never learn. I love the idea that the Empire doesn't learn. You just, well, they just didn't build it big enough. That was the problem. What's going to build it out of a planet this time? You'll see. This will work. Evil fails because they're limited, not because they're, you know, wicked awesome smart. I think you're giving it so much more credit than it deserves. Or like, uh, you know, con again, really? That's where you're going? Really? Yeah. And we've, I'm sure I've talked, maybe not in the podcast, but I've definitely talked about it somewhere. Oh, I did it. I talked about it on Sam McLean's podcast. Um, the thing that I love about Into Darkness, about Khan, is that when he delivers his his big identity, like I, my name is Khan. <laughs> when that happens, the audience responds, but the characters don't, which I think is so great because Kirk and Spock, who the fuck is Khan? We've never heard of this guy, right? And it's even worse for Khan because he's an egomaniac who was a legend in his day. And the idea that no one knows who he is now, I thought that was terrific. I thought that was a really smart use of the mythology. But because everyone gets so distracted by, oh, it's Khan, we knew it was going to be Khan all along, it just that bit doesn't land. Nobody gets the joke, which is that absolutely no one knows who Khan is and why they should be scared of him. And then he goes all Godfather 3 by shooting people through the yeah, basically well, a helicopter. That's the other problem. <laughs> That's the... That's a comparison you don't want. Space helicopter. <laughs> Makes it totally different. But yeah, no, the Godfather 3 <laughs> thing is like, again, evil is not particularly imaginative. But yeah, that is kind of dopey. I admit that. All right. <laughs> I won that argument, sadly. <laughs> My thanks to Hugh Gibson, who'll be down at the Tiff Bell Lightbox this Friday, October 7th, for an introduction in Q&A at the 6.45 p.m. screening of The Stairs. He'll be back at the Lightbox on Wednesday, October 12th for the 6.40 p.m. show and a panel discussion with Rafi Balian from the South Riverdale Community Health Center, Roxanne Smith, who appears in the film, and Toronto City Councilors Joe Cressy and Gord Perks. The Stairs is an important documentary, and you should see it. 
take my word for it. You can follow Hugh on Twitter at MidLampFilms, M-I-D-L-A-M-P Films, all one word. And you can find Star Trek VI The Undiscovered Country on DVD and Blu-ray from Paramount Home Entertainment and for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play. It's also screening at the Lightbox this Sunday, October 9th at 3.45pm. So maybe see that and stick around for the evening show of the stairs? Seems like a good idea. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is, The Assassins Will Surely Find a Way to Dispose of Their Incriminating Footwear. Come on, you can do it. And thanks for listening.